Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Russell Shorto, author of Small Time. Russell Shorto, you are the author of a new book called Small Time, and it is about somebody named Russell Shorto. <laughs> Just coincidence? <laughs> no, uh, no, that's not a coincidence. It's about my grandfather, um, who obviously is my namesake, who died in 1981, so a long time ago. And I knew um, my basically my whole life that he was uh, kind of a small time mob boss he, in, in Johnstown, my hometown. And uh, I, despite the fact that as an adult, I make my living writing history, writing books of narrative history, it, it was only relatively recently that it occurred to me that this would be a good topic, that this would be worth uh, exploring for personal reasons, but also for history because uh, uh, among other things, people aren't so aware of the small town mob, you know, for all of the storied, mythicized uh, accounts there have been in, in books and films of the mob. It's mostly New York and Chicago, and it's a very kind of romanticized story. So I eventually came up with the idea of writing a book about my grandfather that would be a personal family book, uh, and it would be about my town, Johnstown, but it would also be more broadly about a small town mob. So when you talk about the, the small town mob, what, is that, what did that mean then? And when, what's the period that it covers? Um, well, the, the, you know, I knew very little about the mob before I uh, went into this. Um, and that's precisely because I had some awareness of my family association with it. And I just felt uh, that this is such, I, I, I felt, I guess I felt I didn't want to get caught up in a stereotype. Uh, so I just avoided it. I didn't watch the Godfather films. I just stayed back. Uh, so I've learned a lot since then. And um, the story in Johnstown, as in Scranton and Easton and Braddock and Altoona and all over the state and all over the country, um, comes, starts, it uh, develops with prohibition. And it really gets going then after Prohibition uh, when these uh, Southern Italian immigrants uh, start to look for a new income stream and they settle on gambling. And uh, so in my story for my grandfather and his partner who was his brother-in-law, uh, their, their heyday was really World War II until the early 60s. It started earlier than that and it continued somewhat after that, but I, and but that was the heyday, and I think that was the heyday of the small town mob in general. You said that you were uh, vaguely aware of this connection in your family. I mean, were stories told as you were growing up? You know, it's, I think, I, I kind of think every family has stories, you know, unsavory things that everybody knows about, and at the same time, everybody knows we're not going to talk about that. And yet, as a kid, you you pick it up somehow. Maybe there's some little uh, 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 conversation among the adults that 
quickly slips by, but you you register that. And so I always, you know, that's what I mean. I always knew it, but I also always took in, uh, also took in that that sense that we don't talk about it, which is I think why I didn't uh, uh, until recently think, hey, this is a, a really fascinating topic to explore. Did you know your grandfather? I knew him distantly. Uh, I go into this in the book. He um, he was really uh, on the outs uh, by the time I came on the scene. He had one of the issues he had was uh, he was a real uh, serial binge drinker. And uh, that's what got him eventually. He uh, he either left voluntarily or was kicked out of the of the business. Um, and so when by the time I was aware of things, um, he was on the outs in that regard, but also uh, with respect to the family. Uh, they had kind of, he'd done a lot of damage, psycho psychological damage, and people had kind of pushed him out. He still lived in town, and the memories I have of him were of, uh, and at one time I was with my mother downtown, and we were walking down the sidewalk, and some old guy in a, in a kind of baggy gray suit is coming up, and I knew who it was right away. And we stopped and talked. And what was memorable about that was uh, he had this heavy wristwatch and he gave it to me, put it on my wrist. And it was, you know, even even in things like that, it seemed to me, you know, that was inappropriate. His his gestures were even as a has been, he was he didn't follow the norms that that was kind of my impression of him. Do you still have the watch? <laughs> That's what a good question. I do not. I have to ask my mother what in the world happened to that watch. Now, when it sounds like from your book, uh, there wasn't a lot written about your grandfather and his business. You had to talk to people. How, how did you find people who remembered him? Yeah, in fact, yeah. I, I, um, uh, so, so what happened was um, several years ago, I was home visiting uh, at Christmas time. And um, everybody who stayed in town pretty much kept that uh, that um, notion that we don't talk about that stuff. And it eventually kind of fades like everything. Um, it happened that um, my this uh, the man I'm talking about, my namesake, is my father's father. Um, my mother's cousin uh, had been in town. He was um, uh, I didn't know it at the time, but he had been as a teenager. He was a numbers runner for my grandfather and he worked in a pool hall and he was also a jazz musician. So when he was about 20, he finally left town, moved to Las Vegas and had his whole career there. Uh, so this when I this Christmas uh, vacation, when I was home, somebody said, oh, Frank is back in town. Uh, let's let's uh, go see him. He's playing at a local um, club. And so it turned out he had retired and moved home. And so we went to see him and there was a break in the sets and we're all kind of standing around in a circle. And he looks across at me and says, Russell, I've been meaning to talk to you. What are you going to do about the story? You're the writer. And I said, what story? And as soon as I said it, I knew what he was going to say. And he said, what story? Your grandfather, the mob. And I could feel all these people around me kind of, you know, shrink because, you know, they you don't talk about this. But Frank... Uh, I think because he had left so early, to him, these were just golden memories of his youth. And he was, you know, all the razzle dazzle and all that stuff. So um, he kind of popped that bubble and he got me thinking about it. But then I said to him, look, Frank, I write nonfiction. I know those guys didn't 
leave notebooks lying around. Uh, so what am I going to base this on? So I pushed it away, and he kept pushing back. Frank basically said, you write history. This is history. This is American history. People don't know this story. Um, so finally, I was curious enough that I said, all right, I'm going to come back uh, home. This was a year or two later, and I'll spend a week seeing what I can discover. And uh, so he said, all right, I got home and he, I called him and he said, all right, meet me at my hangout. His hangout was and still is Panera Bread. Um, so we went there and we sat down and I turned on the recorder on my phone. And I just thought, you know, he was going to tell me some stories or something. A little old guy comes up a little while later, another one and another. Soon there were about eight guys around us. And, you know, they're leaning on their, on their canes and things. He'd put out the word. Uh, so these, my grandfather and his cohort, those guys were dead and gone. But these were the young guys who had looked up to them, had admired them, you know, hung on their every word. And they had stories. So four hours later, I hit stop on the recorder. And I said, and I said all right, this is um, something. It's not, um, it, it's not good enough for me because these are... Um, memories of people who are you know 80 years old and i'm not going to just rely on that but it's definitely something i was really you know when you're when you're researching a story whatever it is um you, you can tell when you're suddenly you've lost track of time and, and you're just absorbed by it you know if someone is telling you a story you're watching a movie everything else kind of goes away if it's good enough um so i really felt that and uh, so then i I, I did what I normally do when I write history, because normally the history books I write are set hundreds of years ago. So, you know, you're in archives. So I, uh, at the time, my dad was friends with the chief of police in town. He gave me my own key to the, uh, the records room, which was like a big walk-in closet, really, with all these cardboard boxes that were tumbled down. And uh, I spent days there. I went to the county courthouse and got records, my grandfather's arrest records. Um, I filed freedom, FBI Freedom of Information Act requests. So I did that. So and, and lo and behold, these stories that all these guys were telling me, I could fit them together with this documentary record. And um, and and it was making sense. And it was you start to get this three dimensional sense of what was going on uh, and how these guys operated. So I decided I committed to the project and and then I ended up doing more than 200 hours of interviews with basically everybody in town who I could talk to who was uh, of a certain age. What kind of stories did they tell you? Everything. I mean, there were some people who, I mean, the book mixes um, memoir, really kind of intimate details uh, of the family with uh, how they ran this business. Um, and so some people would talk to me about uh, my, let me think, my father's cousin, my father's older cousin uh, was the bookkeeper for them, for their operation. Um, so she had fascinating information because she had, you know, a, a handle on the, on the financials, um, but also could talk about, oh, when Russ, he, she called him Uncle Russ, when he was drunk and, you know, then how his personality changed. Um, uh, so people in the family, people um, in town who knew them, uh, my my one of my greatest resources 
uh, was a man named Mike, who it turned out was really my grandfather's protege. And he was almost the son my grandfather didn't have, despite the fact that my father was on the scene. But he differentiated. And I found that really fascinating that um, he, he, he was keeping my father away from things. But, uh, but Mike, because he had had a similar upbringing, he had grown up kind of on the streets as my grandfather did, um, he took him on, he really took him under his wing. And so Mike, you know, after my, my grandfather, as I kind of suggested before, was, um, there was a lot of uh, darkness in him, which I think uh, is related to uh, kind of weakness in his personality. He became very, um, very successful and and money was just flowing when they were they were at their height and i think he didn't know what to do with it i think it went to his head and i think that the drinking was part of that and he became kind of a a, a, a real womanizer and caused enormous havoc uh not just in my family but beyond and i think in both of those things uh were were related to that to this you know it's you're you're doing a personality study of someone who who's given a lot of power and can't handle it. Was it hard for you to write about some of those things that are very close to you and your family? Yes, it was. Um, and uh, I, my, a lot of people in my family were involved throughout. As I said, I was interviewing them. Um, and and I, um, uh, my daughter and my stepson both transcribed interviews for me. Um, my other daughter did research for me. Uh, I talked endlessly with my parents and other family members about it. Uh, so it was almost like we were a group of us were doing this together. Uh, so it wasn't just me deciding, you know, will I go there? Will I talk about this? And uh, fortunately, I come from a big uh, open family. And my father was really my uh, touchstone for this as he uh, worked with me to try to understand who his father was. Uh, his father was um, a, a, you know, the, the most annoying thing about researching this man, who was my namesake, uh, is that everybody I talked to about him, the first thing they would say when I said, tell me about Russ, they, they would say, he was very quiet. It's like, you know, you want this, you want to find out who this person was, you want to bring him to life again. That's not what you want to hear. Um, so that was a challenge. Uh, but it meant that everybody had their little window in, their, their connection with him. And so what I was trying to do was put all those pieces together to kind of reconstruct this, this person. How did he get into the business in the first place? Um, I think in, in all ways, pretty much, his story tracks the rise and fall of, of the mob in America. He, um, his parents, were uh, had emigrated to America from a village in Sicily. They were uh, part of that wave of four million people who came from southern Italy to the U.S. answering calls for work. Uh, and in their case, um, my this would be my great grandfather. He uh, went to work in a coal mine in Punxsutawney, and uh, that's where they started. And then they moved to Johnstown. And so my grandfather was born in America and he, his parents were subject to that, that extreme kind of discrimination that was that these uh, first immigrants were subjected to. It, 
there was another kind of discrimination that was in force when my grandfather was coming into being. You were, you lived in kind of ghettoized neighborhoods, not just of Italians, but of Hungarians and Poles and others. And um, it was very clear uh, that he was not going to go to college or anything like that. So his path was very limited. And he is a teenager during the years of prohib prohibition. His father uh, died, he was murdered. Um, his mother then had nine children and has, doesn't speak English. Uh, she became a bootlegger. She became a bootlegger. And again, this is part of, um, part of the uh, dynamic that you see all over the country, uh, particularly, uh, so the organization, kind of the way it worked, um, and you have to piece this together from different accounts, there was uh, typically a, a guy who kind of was the boss of the neighborhood, some old Italian guy, and he organized people, and often it was uh, single mothers to set up a still in their living room, and presumably he gave her a share of the profits. And so my grandfather then is going out on the streets with uh, Coke bottles filled with, with moonshine and selling them. So that's how he's kind of getting his start. At the same time, these guys in the neighborhood are teaching him cards and dice. And he, another side of his personality is um, he not only became a big operator in, in gambling, but he was a very good cheat. Um, he was an excellent cheat at cards and dice, and he learned that kind of on the streets. So I, then, I, can I, can I, I, I hate to interrupt you because this is fascinating, but you, speaking of cheating at dice, you mentioned the word skeech, meant to cheat at dice, not by loading them. You had to be able to do it with normal, unadulterated dice. So there's a skill in knowing how to roll dice so you get the roll you want? That's what the guys told me. And um, this protege of my grandfather's, uh, who was, uh, let me think, he was uh, 15 or 20, maybe 15 years younger than him. He told he had been trained by the same old guys who trained my grandfather, and that was how they, they developed an affinity for each other. And he uh, showed me and taught, well, he didn't teach me, but he told me in great detail how you can, you know, manipulate the dice so that uh, you can throw a, a six or a, a 10 or whatever. Um, how, how often that worked, but I guess it worked often enough that you could, uh, you know, you could beat the odds. Um, so uh, so um, my, my grandfather learns all these skills and, and then when prohibition ends, he moves as do people all over the country from um, prohibition, from uh, uh, selling illegal alcohol into gambling. So in, and in both cases, you have to think about how moralistic America was, you know, they had this ban on alcohol. And they also I mean, gambling was incredibly uh, uh, was seen as this terrible evil. And yet, it seems everybody wanted to do it. Um, so once again, the the mob as these guys are coming together into this, you know, organized outfit says, all right, here's a product that everybody wants and nobody's legally allowed to do it, we'll figure out how to how to provide it. We'll provide this service. So that's what happens. As he comes of age, uh, the first arrest warrants I got for him are for um, running card and dice games out of the trunk of a car. 
So that's what he's doing uh, as he's moved out of prohibition. And again, that's what people are doing. Uh, so then the next step in the story is, uh, so my grandfather knows the town. He knows Johnstown, knows all the neighborhoods, knows all the people, knows how to, you know, who wants to gamble, who's into the big games and the, and the small games and the craps games. Uh, another guy had grown up in the Philadelphia mob. And one of the things I find fascinating about the mob in general is how much these guys admired American capitalism and they emulated it. And so as it was becoming successful, they started to open branch offices. And this guy, uh, in exchange for um, uh, taking the fall for someone in a counterfeiting charge, uh, they gave him Johnstown, which was then this up and coming booming steel town. So he shows up in town. Uh, his name was Joe, they called him Little Joe. Uh, and he meets this girl who he eventually marries, who happens to be my grandfather's sister. And so Joe comes bringing the, the, the imprimatur, the, the official um, franchise, and his brother-in-law knows the town already. He's got it all figured out. So they, that's how they, they um, got together. And uh, they then, it seems pretty systematically, put together... A, uh, a gambling operation that um, had all sorts of uh, manifestations to it. That the, the heart of it was uh, a numbers game, which they called the GI Bank, which I think is just marvelous uh, PR because it was really in its heyday. It, um, it, it came into being during and just after the war. So it's like by calling it the GI Bank, it, it feels like if you're playing, you're you're supporting the troops or something. Um, <laughs> So you, you got a numbers game, which people told me half the town played. So they and that they had about a hundred people working for them: numbers runners, accountants. Um, they had card and dice games. They had card games for the big shots in town, the guys who were the owners of the department stores and the clothing stores and things. Um, they ran something called tip seals, which were very popular then, which was kind of like a lottery. You um, you you bought a ticket. And uh, your ticket had a number on it. You immediately, if you, you bought it for a dime or a dollar, and if the number underneath it matched the number you bought, then you won the, whatever, the, whatever the bet was. Uh, that was very popular. They also um, were into pinball. Pinball was uh, used for gambling in mid-century America. It was very popular um, because, and, and the, the big innovation was when they, in, I think, I think it was 1947 when um, they they started having flippers on the machine. Before that, you you spun the ball and it just bounced around the machine. But once you had flippers, it felt like the player could control things a bit. And the way pinball worked as a form of gambling was um, you uh, 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 won so you won free games. And if you won once you won so many free games, you would go up to you know the the pinball machine is in a bar or a cafe or something. You'd go up to the bartender and say, "Okay, I got ten free games," and the, and the bartender would pay you for those. And the beauty of that was, there's no product. You know, it wasn't like there's a pack of chewing gum or something that the IRS could say, "Oh, you know, where's our percentage of that sale?" So it was. So what they did is the the outfit. Uh, split the take with the owner of the establishment that housed the pinball machine. So they had these, you know, this many ways that you could uh, lose your money and uh, many ways really to entertain because the big, you know, the big um, uh, aspect of all this is they were providing a public service, which was 
entertainment. This has everything to do with the fact that um, that uh, uh, this is really before the advent of television. There's this fascinating, I think you could do a really nice um, inverse comparison of the decline, the rise and then decline of the mob and the rise of television in America. It was really in the 50s when they were really going great guns. In 1950, 5% of American households had a TV. By 1960, 90% did. And you really see, and by then, that, you know, that the heyday of the, the mob, especially the small town mob in America, was, was passed. I want to ask you a question. You, you write in here, <clears throat> back in 1911, the mayor of Johnstown made it a campaign promise that no one of Italian descent would work in his administration, not even as a street cleaner. When your grandfather came along, were Italians still uh, out of the mainstream like that? Yeah, and I think that uh, that is very much part of the story of the rise of the mob in America. Um, it's, you know, in so many ways, there's, well, there's a layer of immigration. Now, America wants immigrants. We want people to come in and do all these jobs that Americans didn't want to do. And then there's the next layer, which is discrimination. And there's this huge backlash. As I said, four million people from southern Italy uh come into the country and then americans real americans uh you know who were mostly white anglo-saxon protestant uh by 1920 were really up in arms about this and so what you get then is uh the return of the ku klux klan you know the klan uh came into being after the civil war and it was this anti-black i mean they were afraid of you know the uprising of blacks and they're going to take over it had com completely died out by 1920, it suddenly, seemingly out of nowhere, comes back and there are Klan chapters all over the country. They're marching with the hoods on and everything in Washington and in New York. And it was anti-Catholic. It was anti-immigrant and particularly Catholic because by and large, these immigrant groups were from Catholic countries in Europe. And there was this, I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine now, but there was this very strong fear that, you know, the Pope was behind all this and he was infiltrating America and he was going to change. Uh, he was he was out to to subvert American values uh, so that, yes, uh, for people like my grandfather, that's what, what I meant when I said um, as a as a kid growing up, coming of age, what what paths did he have? You know, he, they knew everyone knew people like him weren't going to uh, uh, advance along the established channels. And so they, and, and yet they, they taught them in school, you know, to admire George Washington, to admire Henry Ford and, and, and Frick and Carnegie and all those guys. So in, in essence, what they did is they tried to copy them, but in their own, in, in, in along their own path and with the uh, products that they knew people wanted that, um, that they could provide. Did they ever use violence as part of their job? Uh, one of the, you know, I'm writing in this book about the small town mob, and um, in many ways it it mirrors what was going on in big cities, but the, I, I think there are some crucial differences, and one is violence. Um, a, a big city could withstand, uh, first of all, in a big city, the money presumably was uh, on a much higher scale. Um, but a big city could withstand crime. You could, it, it just gets swallowed up. Um, if people in a town the size of Johnstown, uh, if they started gunning people down, um, th th people just couldn't handle that. The, the, the authorities would come in, they would crack down on this. Um, so for the most part, 
uh, in Johnstown and in other places where I've um, done some research, uh, it was pretty, um, it was, there was very low level violence. They did a lot of, uh, they had muscle guys who worked for them who would go and smack somebody around because they owed the money or something. Um, and in fact, at the heart of the book, the story that I tell is a murder, a murder of a bookie, uh, which was never solved. And, and believe it or not, Brian, um, uh, someone just this morning sent me, emailed me from, she, she, she is the daughter of, uh, her her father had been uh, a editor at the Johnstown Tribune Democrat at the time, and she had all this information about about this murder. Um, so anyway, you know, uh, you write a book and things, you know, you get all kinds of uh, things come out of it. But um, but uh, this bookie was murdered in 1960, and it it really spelled the beginning of the end for Russ and Joe and their operation because it happened right as um, Kennedy was coming into the White House and he brought in his brother, Bobby Kennedy, uh, as attorney general. And, you know, through the 50s, the federal government was trying to say there's no such thing as this nationwide organization that's, you know, um, that, that's criminal in intent and so on. By this time, by 1960, everybody knew that was wrong and kennedy uh, bobby kennedy came in uh, on a promise to uh clean up the mob and in this little town in pennsylvania suddenly this bookie is murdered and and it it happened in a very dramatic way he went missing his body wasn't discovered for six or seven weeks and so you see in the newspapers and and all my informants my interview subjects were telling me about this uh you know, there was this, where's Pippi? What's what's going on with Pippi? What, you know, this is very strange and his car is still parked on Vine Street and, you know. Um, so it allows this mystery and this anxiety to build. And then they finally found find his body. And um, uh, then the whole investigation plays out against the backdrop of the Kennedy administration's uh, uh, efforts in Washington. So suddenly you have the attorney general in Washington corresponding with the mayor of Johnstown and, and you've got FBI agents in town. So that really uh, spelled the beginning of the end. That kind of pressure uh, was what started to uh, change things. Well, when your grandfather was involved in this operation, what, was it organized? I mean, was crime organized? Was there was the Johnstown mob in contact with the Pittsburgh mob and the Philadelphia mob? And then were they taking orders from the top or were they all operating as kind of little pockets? I think it was both. Um, you know, I've gotten a lot of information from my my um, my network, uh, but also from books and from uh, reading through FBI. Um, uh, you know, and by the way, you file an FBI Freedom of Information Act request. It took like more than four years to start getting the information, so you have to be patient. Um, but. Um, I think it was a little of both. There was a level of organization. There was, um, you know, Johnstown uh, relationship with Pittsburgh, sir, with Pittsburgh and and with Philly, and, but it was mostly Johnstown to Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh to New York, apparently. Um, uh, but also, they were very aware of their immediate surroundings, um, of what was going on in Altoona and in New Kensington and in Braddock and in Greensburg. Um, and then there were, you know, they they had dealings with people in Atlantic City and in Florida. Um, so yes, there was a network, and yes, at the same time, it seems like 
they each operated kind of like a medieval warlord, you know, with his own uh, turf uh, that you had to defend. But did ever anybody ever try to move in on them, like a, a, a neighboring town? Do boys try to take over the Johnstown mob? Yes, and um, I think that happened. I don't know how often, um, but uh, certainly the circumstances surrounding the death of Pippi, Pippi DeFalco, the bookie I referred to. Um, that's what the the people at the time, the the reporters were zeroing in on, and uh, some of the people of my sources uh, told me that that's what they think uh, was going on. It had to do with in any uh, Pippi. Um, worked sometimes for Russ and Joe, but he he was he ran a sports book. Um, but he would also go out on his own. He had his own customers. And apparently that was allowed. You know, it took me a long time not having this kind of mentality naturally um, to understand that it wasn't the case that everybody in town who had a gambling operation had to work for them. You know, they weren't their employees. You could have your own thing going, oh, but... Um, what they did, what the the mob did, was they were the ones who paid off the authorities. They paid that they were the, their center of their operation on Main Street was called City Cigar, and uh, it was two doors from uh, City Hall. It was a cigar shop in front, and there was a door behind it. And you walked in, and there were uh, ten pool tables and a billiards table, and they had a counter with a, a ticker tape on it, um, and uh, that that was the that was the, the 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 nerve center and um uh everything uh, everything they did um operated on, on that level what kind of relationship did they have with uh, with city hall and with local politicians and local police they well they I, they they were they were everybody i talked to over a certain age knew who russ and joe were um knew them personally because it's a small town um, and, and they didn't have to actually themselves be in the, the mob, but they, um, for the most part, partook of their services. Everybody it was normal for people to just play the numbers. Um, they knew what they were doing. They knew that where their base was. Um, it was all in the open and it was, it could be in the open because first of all, because, uh, there was a very low level of violence. So it was tolerable. Uh, they were providing something that people wanted, um, and they kept people happy. They kept the authorities happy. So the mayor supposedly would come. I heard stories. He would come in every day around lunchtime and shoot the breeze with them and presumably would leave with an envelope. Um, they paid off the police. Um, they uh, manipulated uh, the races for, for district attorney. They... Um, uh, so they, so they provided this kind of umbrella, a protective umbrella. And under that, then other people, if they wanted, could operate a, a card game or something. And, but in exchange for that, they, they were supposed to pay them something. So that was, the, that was the deal. That's how they, so they were really woven into the fabric. So, and and, and they, the fabric of the town, and even more than what I'm describing, because um, in addition to providing this array of gambling services, they would uh, let's say they have pinball machines in your in your tavern, and um, you're behind on your rent. Well, they'll help. They'll you know they'll pay your rent for the next six months or something. You know, and in exchange they'll take a piece of the business. You know, and and maybe later down the line they took over the business. So they owned a, a number of different uh, legitimate businesses. Um, so they were 
um, they were woven into the fabric of things. And again, I can't stress enough how ordinary this was. I'm not talking about Johnstown as some, you know, anomaly. This was this was me small, medium-sized town America, Anchorage, Alaska, Butte, Montana, Amarillo, Texas, uh, Fresno, California. This was, it was how the country operated. So what was so wrong about what they were doing? Um, well, the the funny thing about you know researching this and talking to people about it and they you know talking to the old guys and they can't help but get a little bit sort of you know whispery when they're talking but then you stop and say all of this is legal now <laughs> people people play the lottery they do you know they can gamble on whatever yeah when you watch um, when you watch television now and see commercials for sports betting on tv well and you think about what your grandfather did what, what are your thoughts there well yeah i mean that's what um uh uh one of his uh, uh, friends and colleagues uh, talked to me about uh, how in year, later years, in the 1980s, um, he, uh, by then, he had graduated and was, I mean, he was not part of the mob, but he was running his own um, um, uh, sports book uh, all up and down the East Coast, and he went to prison for it. And he got out of prison and he said, I was so mad at myself because now I'm looking around. This is all people are doing this legally. I mean, people are just playing lotteries. I organized my own lottery and I got busted for it, you know. So. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's amazing how. How history turns, uh, you know, what we're talking about now was once considered so so and people really did think it was just terrible um this behavior and yet presumably everyone did it uh and you know i think of that same kind of thing in in terms of uh the discrimination that he faced that my grandfather faced um and then how strange it is now i mean they thought of southern italians as and you know because of course in in the early 20th century blacks were of a very very low on the on the ladder and southern italians were right there in fact in some um statistics i saw southern italians were um paid less than blacks so you would not say now a southern if your ancestry is southern italian you know obviously you're going to be discriminated against you know there are other people now who who are in categories that are discriminated against uh although i would hope not quite as openly as was the case then I want to read something in your book where you, you quote a Mike Giuliano. <clears throat> he says, once, Russ once told me, Mike, there's two different kinds of people. With the first, you throw a handful of shit in a guy's face and he knows it's shit. You forget about that guy. You can't make any money off of him. With the other kind, you tell him the shit you're feeding him is ice cream and he'll believe it. You let him think that, you got him to love the taste of it, and then you take every effing dime he's got. <laughs> that's the uh that you know and he told me that and he was he was proud he said you know that was one of the most important things i ever heard <laughs> uh and that was like and he was you know really talking to mike was so great because he was very open about the the philosophy the psychology of a cheat you know of a of a con man I mean, almost to the point where I was like, you know, I want to be a con man. <laughs> I would be the worst con man in the world. But um, uh, but he was trying to, that's the, I was talking about him before and how he and my grandfather really bonded. And he understood my grandfather, I think, better than, than most anyone else uh, who I came across. Um, and 
So one of the things that I, um, conclusions that I uh, came to was that my grandfather had to be two different things. One, um, he, I think his nature, what he felt, felt most happy with was being a cheat, was playing. And my dad would describe him as um, he would watch him when he was a little kid uh, before he would go. He knew he was going to go play a big card game that night. And he would spend a couple of hours like practicing on the on the uh, dining table, dealing from the bottom of the deck and dealing the second card and uh, just like a, like an athlete. He's warming up um, and uh, he, he was very good at it. And um, at the same time, though, because of the, I guess, accident of circumstances, it happened that his brother in law was the guy who brought the mob. And so he had this he became um, uh you know, like, like the manager of a, a company, which means you have responsibility. And, 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 and I wonder if that kind of responsibility didn't weigh on him and, and lead him to, you know, some of those problems that he had, like, uh, with alcohol. Did he ever go to jail? Uh, yeah, there were, well, there, he was, uh, I'm trying to think of how many arrests he had. And yes, he went to jail, uh, seven or eight arrests, but then they stopped. Um, I don't think he was ever arrested uh, after 1946. Um, and so, and that's when they have figured, it seems that they have figured out then the system, the payoffs and so on. Um, so then what would happen was, uh, and part of the, the, the way this operated was, uh, they, they kept the authorities paid off and, um, but once in a while they would have to, but people knew what was going on and they knew it was illegal. So once in a while they'd have to, uh, bust you. So they would call them and let them know. And uh, they'd say, we're coming Tuesday afternoon or something. And um, they would uh, come into the, the, so then everybody would leave, and, but they would leave some guy behind, usually an old guy who didn't mind spending a night in, in prison. And uh, they would leave a handful of betting slips around. So there would be something for them to find that could be written up in the paper the next day. Uh, and then it would start all over again. First of all, you, you have your family's pasta recipe in the book. <laughs> I do. What possessed you to do that? <laughs> I just thought it was, um, you know, I, uh, um, let me think. That's a good question. I thought, um, I said I, in the beginning of the book, I say we weren't um, overtly over the top Italian. We're just very emotive. And I, I think I said, Ants who kissed you on the lips and long conversations about about spaghetti sauce. Those were the ways we were Italian. Um, and so food is still remains an important thing uh, in my family. And uh, things like that, the the spaghetti sauce recipe. Um, uh, that's uh, it has kind of a, it's kind of a life's blood almost. And it, it just seemed. I think I put it in a footnote. And I think and and. Um, and it seemed appropriate. It seemed like an appropriate, you know, I'm not gonna talk about how, you know, I'm not talking a lot about this longing for the old country or anything like that. You know, part, I, I did an event last night and someone and the interviewer asked me if, um, just about being Italian American or, you know, for that matter, Irish American or, or whatever, um, is that fading? Are those, you know, those ethnic, um, tendencies fading and I would say certainly they are my I don't feel that nearly the way my parents did my parents generation uh, and they didn't nearly as much as my grandparents did um, and my my children you know I mean they'll 
with thanks to this book, I guess they think about it. For, but by and large, I think you know that's in the back of my mind um, that there's good and bad to that. That we are, as a country, kind of losing that kind of that that those connections because I mean it, it, it's it's unfortunate because there's you know there's there's history and there's food and all of that that's part of it. Um, but then again, of course, there's the um, uh, uh, when you have those divisions and you defend them, then you're almost automatically setting up kind of warring, warring camps. So, you know, all that somehow, I, I guess what I'm saying is this book, it was about my grandfather, it was about the mob, but really, I, as I got into it, I realized this is about, this is the story of American immigration. It's just one take on it, you know, but it's not different, so different from other ethnic groups uh, coming. And uh, and and it's really history. I mean, we're that's not happening that way now. People aren't people who emigrate now. It's not the the same the same dynamic. And I, I guess by and large, that's a good thing. Now, on your front cover, you have a quote: "Great history mixed with lovely lingering memories." And the quote is from Francis Ford Coppola. How did you get Francis Ford Coppola to give your book a blurb? Uh, well, I would love to say he's an old friend, but but uh, that's not true. Uh, my editor said, you know, how about if we try to get uh, it in front, the book in front of uh, Francis Ford Coppola and see if he'll take a look at it. And she got a, a, a dresser and, and his assistant said, OK, he'll take a look. And lo and behold, and he actually sent a very nice long uh, blurb that went into all these details, which I thought were nice because he pointed out the pinball machines and the and the tip seals and I mean it, I could almost see uh, uh, a, a director thinking you know looking at certain details and saying you know these are the things that jump out at him so it was I was incredibly grateful. Now you mentioned the newspapers in town what kind of articles did did you find that the newspapers covering your your grandfather's business? Um, well in their heyday they didn't cover it um, because of uh, precisely what I'm talking about but there's you know uh, Towns all over the country used to have, typically they would have your, your daily paper um, and they would have a weekly. And the weekly was a little bit more of a, a gossip thing. Uh, and so the Johnstown Observer, when I hit on that, that was a really great source because they had a, a what's going on about town section. And um, they would report some of these things. They would report, you know, periodically they'd say, why are the, um, and th th that was one of the sources that reinforced things that my my living sources were telling me. They would say, you know, why are the authorities doing nothing about what they're doing at the cigar shop? You know, and they would come right out and say it, and then you wouldn't see it again uh, for a while. Um, and then with, with the murder of the bookie, once he went missing, it's the observer, it's that paper where you start to see this, hey, what happened to Pippi? Where did, you know, why is nobody, are the police investigating? Uh, and so they were on that more quickly than the, than the daily paper was. And you, you say in here, uh, one of the newspapers, Martin uh, said his newspaper was now being threatened, not by mobsters, but by Johnstown businessmen. The paper was warned that if we didn't lay off the Pippi case and forget it, we would lose some advertising business. Which speaks to, uh, yeah, that's the, uh, the Observer, the Weekly. And this guy, Larry Martin, was, seemed to be a really intrepid uh, um, editor and reporter. Uh, and that's what I mean by how much a part of things it was, you know, this, the, the business, the operation. Uh, and people were used to it 
you know, provided uh, uh, the money was spread around, then this is how we operate. And um, I, I'm, all I have the evidence for that is what you just read, uh, some things like that and, and other things like it, where the, the newspaper is saying, we have been threatened with uh, with advertising that they would pull advertising if we didn't stop working on if we didn't stop uh, digging into this and this is then that's part of the reason that why I, I talk about that particular murder as the thing that starts to make this whole thing come unraveled you also write about an issue of the johnstown tribune democrat that is missing like all the copies were destroyed <laughs> yeah um 1971 um, 71, thank you. Um, the, uh, so things evolve slowly when it comes to this, this kind of change, you know, where for years and years, this system uh, exists where um, they operate, and they do their payoffs and everybody's kind of in on it. Um, then around the time and, and partly thanks to this murder, everything starts to change and starts to change in the country as well. But that's 1960, and it takes a long time for that change to really manifest and to work its way through the system. And what's happening over the course of the 60s is this is becoming more and more um, uh, uh, integrated into the bureaucracy of, of law enforcement. And so then in 1971, you get the Pennsylvania Crime Commission which issues a, a very a, a detailed report on crime in cities. All this Basically, they're opening the, the, the lid on what I'm talking about that was happening in cities all over the state. And, um, and they conduct, they, they, uh, conduct uh, trials, testimonials of uh, uh, people in, in different cities. And um, they, their report then comes out in the Johnstown newspaper, the Tribune Democrat, publishes the whole thing in the in that day's paper, which is a remarkable thing. And um, people told me that little Joe, I mean, because it, it, it he, you know, up until that time, he was, then uh, this is my great uncle, uh, I'm talking about, he was, you know, a respected and respectable businessman in town. That was the persona. You didn't, you know, what we're talking about now, the way I'm talking about it, you didn't use words like mob and things like that. Um, and suddenly the whole paper is filled with their going, their doings and, um, and is calling him names, you know, saying he's a, a criminal. Um, and people told me he, he bought up every, he, he went away somehow he got bought up every issue of that, of the paper. Um, and I have not found a single issue of it. Um, and the, the Tribune Democrat today was very helpful with me. They, I, I was in their archives many times and did a lot of digging around. And uh, the editor, Chip Minimeyer, is a great guy who helped me a lot. Um, they searched their files. That day is missing. It's not on the microfilm. They don't have it. So he was pretty thorough. Uh, did your father ever get involved in his father's business? That is, uh, you're getting at something that's right at the center of the book. Um, and, and, we're mostly talking about history here, um, but the book also is very much memoir and family story. And what I get to at a certain point in the book is my, um, I grew up somehow with this notion that, um, that my grandfather had wanted to bring his son, my father into the business um, and that my father had resisted and 
I also grew up with this notion that he resisted for us. He had this young family and he was building a wall. He was protecting us from, from the dark side. Um, and my grandfather, I knew, you know, when I was really little, I knew him as this dark figure and it just all fit, you know, okay, he's protecting us from that. Um, from talking to some of these guys who had worked for my grandfather, uh, it, it slowly um, penetrated my brain that in fact, that wasn't the case. And in fact, my father had, and by the way, you have to understand my father was doing the research on the book with me. He was helping me. He was going, he would call up a guy and say, hey, we're just talking about you. We're gonna come over, you know? And so we'd go and, you know, shoot the breeze. And um, so he's working with me on this. And then some of these guys start to tell me, no, your father wanted in. He desperately wanted in as a teenager. And his father, Russ, if he caught him hanging around City Cigar, would beat the crap out of him. Uh, and, you know, it took me a while to, um, to, to process that. And it took me a couple of years after hearing this and hearing it from a number of people before I could bring it up to my dad, you know, <laughs> even what, though we're working on this. So that's what I mean. I get into all this in the book because you know, we start, I go back, I start in the book, I mean, I'm, I'm in Sicily, and then I'm with my grandfather in Johnstown building this operation. And then suddenly my dad, who's helping me um, uh, uh, uncover all this, suddenly we're kind of looking at each other in my parents' dining room and saying, and I'm like, well, you know, <laughs> I'm almost saying, who are you? <laughs> um, uh, so, and it turned out that, yeah, he had wanted in and his father violently rejected him and my dad then um actually uh joined a gang and it was a pretty violent gang for a while and i clearly see this now it was this father-son dynamic he did because my grandfather um didn't didn't say look i didn't have much choice when i was growing up but now things are different you're not discriminated against in the same way you have a lot more opportunities you don't need this he didn't say if he had just said that I think their lives, their relationship would have been different. But uh, instead, they lived in the same town most of their lives and didn't speak to each other. They just formed these, these real, you know, um, hardened uh, antipathies. Um, so uh, I get into that kind of thing in the book because it does, you know, I'm a, I write narrative history. Um, most of the time I'm writing about things that happened hundreds of years ago but it really does come down to uh, people and those kind of emotional forces between people, between a father and a son or, or um, uh, history isn't just names and dates, you know? And when doing, the, the, the big revelation for me doing this book was that when you're doing family history, you're still doing history. And, and, and it's strange to see uh, you don't have to be named, you know, Kennedy or something to 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 say my family is in history and is changing history. I mean, you you can actually see that. If you could talk to your grandfather, what would you ask him? Uh, who killed Pippi? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I don't. You know, uh, I think I would. You know, the, the what I was just going over there for a few minutes, if I could sit down with my father and grandfather, my father died, unfortunately, while we were nearing the end of the uh, time on the book. And um, if I could sit down with both of them and say, look, it was isn't this the case? Isn't this what the problem was? And, and you know, to 
to have caused such a, uh, a, a hardened divide in a family and all in the same town um, over something as, as, as ridiculous as, a, as an inability to communicate seems like a, a tragedy. We have about one minute left. What are your other books? Um, the Island at the Center of the World is what I'm known for, uh, probably most. Uh, it's about the Dutch founding of New York. And I argue that New York is New York because it was founded by the Dutch. They brought diversity and they brought free trade, and that's New York. Um, uh, my last book is called Revolution Song. It's about the American Revolution. It's six people's lives, uh, very different backgrounds, a slave, a Native American, George Washington, uh, a woman who's the daughter of a British officer, and all their lives kind of woven together and through that telling the story of the, of the revolution. Well, we've been speaking with Russell Shorto. His latest book is Small Time, The Story of My Family and the Mob in Johnstown. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Brian. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.